0: Hi, I'm Dan from Desert Island Dicks. This episode features journalist, writer, food critic and musician Jay Rayner and I think it's a great episode. Fans of his won't be surprised to know that he really took to the format like a duck to water so I think you're in for a treat. This Saturday the 28th of November Jay is doing a streamed performance of his show My Last Supper in which he contemplates what would be his last meal and it's in aid of the charity The Food Chain which provides nutritional advice and support to people with HIV. It's a really good cause and there's a link to buy tickets in the description of this episode and Jay talks more about it at the very end of this podcast as well. If you enjoy listening to these episodes and it makes you want to tell the world about the people and things that really get on your tits, then you can get involved too with our regular companion podcast, Compact Dicks, where me and founder of Desert Island Dicks, James Deacon, read out your submissions. It comes out every Friday and you can tell us who and what you hate by going to dickspod.com slash contact. Before we get stuck in, please do subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating if you can, because it's really handy for us and it means that you'll always be the first to get the episodes and it also means that we'll like you even more than the other listeners, and that's a lot. Okay, now that's all out the way, let's get stuck into Desert Island Dicks with Jay Rayner. I'm Dan Benedictus and welcome to Desert Island Dicks, the show that sees you marooned on a desert island after a plane crash with the worst people and worst things imaginable. Who they are and why they're a dick is up to our guest and here to share their Desert Island Dicks with us today is journalist, writer, broadcaster and musician Jay Rayner. Hello. Hello Dan, how are you? I'm very well. How are you doing today? Well, I'm
1: slightly disturbed by the idea of being marooned on a bloody island. I don't don't want to go. (laughs) I don't want to go there at all. I mean, it's not even... The, the, the possibility of the
0: company or the things, it's
1: just, it sounds like a fucking nightmare. It really does.
0: Yeah, and it's a nightmare of entirely your own making as well, so yeah, you no, only absolutely. have yourself to blame. I,
1: exactly. You asked, I said yes. God knows what you know possessed me, but here we are.
0: Okay. And now um obviously given the nature of your work, you know, you uh, give opinions on things for a living and how did you find the process of kind of whittling down uh, your dislikes for this podcast? Well, well hugely cathartic because at the moment, trying
1: to be a good human being, I have sworn off doing or publishing negative restaurant reviews. Mm on the grounds that, A, I don't really think it's what people want to read, and B, you know, the restaurant industry is already on its knees and Mm. it doesn't need that bastard Rayner, you know, laying into them with with knives and forks. Um, So, really, the opportunity to really let rip on a few people and things has been a joy. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. It was cathartic. When you asked, I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, that would be great. I can really
0: go for this. Good. Well, we're happy to facilitate your rage. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I need. <laughs> OK, well, let's dive straight in. Who's going to be the first person joining you on the island?
1: The first person joining me on the island is the Right Honourable Michael Gove MP. Mm. And, and I, frankly, I think I should be thanked by everybody else <laughs> for taking him. Um, because I am performing a public service. I have a lot of history with Michael Gove, okay. an awful lot of history. Um, and he represents everything that's wrong. Some of it actually has to be said. We were amicable... If you go back mm. twenty five years, he was another hack, and you know, in, in London newspaper journalism, we all knew each other, and you know, you'd nod at him at parties and have a little conversation. He all seemed jolly pleasant. I didn't realise he was uh, an utter destructive cunt in the making. Can I say <laughs> that on your podcast? Absolutely. Can I? Yeah, <laughs> I clearly just have. So, so that's that's good. Um, so, w- where to start with Gove? First of all, newspaper columnists should never go into government. Mm. Um, I am one. I know what what we do. And what we do is we come up with an idea or an argument that is compelling across ten paragraphs and to deadline. Now, that's not a bad thing in itself because it's a way of speaking a certain kind of truth to power, to pointing out things, and that can be valuable. But as a way of making policy or thinking that you can make policy, it's idiotic. Um, And having got into politics, Gove has proved himself to be every kind of duplicitous, shallow newspaper columnist you could ever wish to come across. Um, And he hides that behind a veneer, an absolute greasy veneer of civility, which is just mind boggling. Um, I had a row with him, a very weird one. Actually, it started with me having a row with his wife. There's lots of history here. How long is this podcast? Seven hours? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, as long um, as you want. <laughs> you just cut out whichever bits you want. So first of all, Sarah Vine, who I worked with when she was deputy production editor on the, on the section of the Mail on Sunday that I worked on back in the day. We're talking about almost 30 years ago now. Um she had a real crack at Ed Miliband for having two kitchens, apparently. Mm. And I made the point, well, at least he paid for his own money and didn't spend £7,000 on expenses that he then had to repay. <laughs> and she got really, really... And it turned into some row, which, Dara I say, I think I won. Anyway, come early December... No, mid-December 2016, Gove is in the, um, is in the wilderness because uh, Theresa May has got rid of him and he's out. Um despite having, you know, won the Brexit vote by, Mm. uh, as he even admitted himself, being part of a campaign which stoked xenophobic fears, uh, claimed Turkey was going to join the EU, put that 350 million quid figure on the side of a bus, lied, Mm. uh, did all of those things. Um, And he has a crack at me on Twitter about me asking shops that are selling any of my books to get in touch and I'll retweet and all this. Um, and it went on and on. It ended with him saying that if I ever wanted to get involved in public service like he had, then I should get in touch. Wow. This from a man who was earning six figures from Rupert fucking Murdoch to write a column at the time. <laughs> I mean, just, the, the, he's a scumbag of extraordinary depth. Yeah. He's the man who brought Dominic Cummings into the heart of government, who created this vengeful, bullying culture. Um Really, there is no beginning to his talents and no end to his mendacity. <laughs>
0: I mean, I, basically, for, I can't disagree with anything you've said, there, but it's so beautifully. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just feel as well, I mean, you know, he was the one who came up with the um, we've had enough of experts thing, which is just oh. going to run forever, you know, and it's it's the same thing, you know, like when you see everything that happens in America with Donald Trump and people just absolutely refusing to look at evidence or going, what do you know? know? You're just I an know. expert. And, and, and it's just, I mean, if anything we can take away from... Brexit. is just such a damaging thing to say. Completely damaging. In um, 2017, he became uh, brought back into
1: government. He's he's made DEFRA secretary. And I got this approach. um, He's going to hold a round table of informed food people. And would I join? I, I thought, was I a big enough man to sit in the room with Michael Gove? And I decided I wasn't. But I wasn't going to waste that opportunity. So I wrote. A three and a half thousand word position paper explaining the state of our food supply chain um, people may know me only as a restaurant critic and the the fop who turns up with the beard and the hair on master chef but I've, I've been a reporter for a very long time i wrote a whole book on food sustainability mm-hmm. and genuine definitions thereof called greedy man in the hungry world available from all good bookshops um and i wrote this position paper which basically everything that's in there has proven to be the case about the uh, lack of self-sufficiency, the the parlous state we're in. But he's just pushed on with this bloody project. And, you know, possibly by the time you release this, we may have a deal, but it doesn't look that way. And if we don't get one, the damage to people's lives is going to be intense. Uh, I blame him for everything. He's a greasy, backstabbing scumbag. And I think my willingness to nominate him to come on this bloody island with me is her- a heroic act on
0: my part. <laughs> I agree. I agree, and I also think, though, knowing that his sort of duplicitous nature, you know, even if sort of after a certain amount of time on the island, you kind of said, "Oh, let's just put everything aside for the just, just so that we can get along like human beings, because we just have to survive." even then you'd never know if you could you'd never be able to trust him because you know he could no. just flip-flops so quickly yeah yeah you'd, you'd never be able to trust him can I say by the way if you want to
1: read that position paper on the part of the state of our food supply it's still on my website joebrainer.co.uk. explains <laughs> that my the, the whole background of me and Gove with links and everything no you couldn't <laughs> trust him you could never trust him. um in any way whatsoever i have to tell you you know we've just been through a stage of downing street reconfiguring itself Mm. and it's all shown boris johnson's position to be very shaky with his own party and it genuinely is and i can guarantee that you know when that happened over that weekend uh gove and Ms. vine they lay in bed propped up discussing next moves Because surely Mr Gove must be next in line. I I think actually his own party recognises that he's a wanker and wouldn't elect him. That's a technical term for a political octave, by the way.
0: <laughs> I just think you can absolutely imagine him kind of, in, you know, in a school uniform with shorts on, holding a bully's jacket while they punch up a weaker student, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then denying that he'd done any anything of
0: the sort. I was merely facilitating
1: a more polite environment uh, uh, through which the exchange of views could take place. Yeah, Th- That's the thing. He, you know, I've, I've been in conversations with him. I've discussed things with him and. Um, greasy plausible he is a newspaper columnist in that way that plausibility (laughs) the only thing and and, and, you know boris johnson's also exactly the same and what's happening with every single deadline they're missing them that's what's (laughs) going on they're the kind of journalists that make editors despair
0: Well, I think you've argued that so beautifully. I think we can move straight on to the, the second person joining him with you on the island.
1: Yeah, um, and this comes you know, right from my wheelhouse, and it's <laughs> um, Uber chef Gordon Ramsay. Now, I want to preface this with the statement that there is no doubt that he is a very gifted chef. He's a very mm. gifted cook. Uh, I've eaten some great food from Gordon Ramsay himself at aubergine I remember in the early 90s 94 actually when he aubergine and its pomp absolutely stupendous um I'm marking him as a dick to go on the desert island uh because of his belief uh that the way forward for a television career was to promote himself through violence intimidation and aggression Mm. Uh, I suspect that somewhere in his childhood he received abuse uh of uh you know whether it was emotional or physical i don't know i'm sure in various kitchens he was shouted at relentlessly uh he thinks that's what being a real man is i think the damage he has done to the restaurant industry by portraying it as a place in which this has to go on is vast um he should hold his head in shame you know he's made enormous amounts of money and he doesn't you know need to worry about me But I think he, in the long run, it doesn't really matter if he can make a trio of herb-flavoured creme brulees. You see, I remember some of the dishes. Uh, (laughs) If uh, what he has done is got where he is through shouting at people, belittling people, intimidating people, then it's all worthless. Hmm.
0: I I think it's interesting because I think... You know, you see it in different uh, areas of, of reality TV from kind of America's next top model to The Apprentice, where it's a lot of people who are very angry saying, you've got to toughen up if you're going to make it in this industry because people are bastards. And you think, well, well you could stop being a bastard. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, you could stop being the bastard. You could stop shouting. You could stop making this a horrendous working environment. Um, there is A conversation has started, a real one, certainly within the british end of the hostility industry about working conditions about mental health about depression and drink and drugs among hard work kitchen staff Uh, i i know some people listening to this will say but surely you're part of the problem Rainer, because you dole out savage reviews well they are never face-to-face personal abuse i talk about what happens to the money you spend and i also make a point of not picking on little people Hmm. you know um before I came up with this edict that I wouldn't write negative reviews, uh, I'd long said that if I came across sort of mom and pop operation, which was failing, I wasn't going to write about it because they don't need a national newspaper to do that. Uh, so if if I'm accused of punching, I always punch up. The thing about Gordon Ramsay was he thought it was clever to punch down. Mm. He's a bully. Yeah. Uh, even if he would say that's just a persona, then that's him. And
0: it, the persona is that of a bully. Yeah, and I, I think it's just as a bystander kind of watching programmes about chefs and things like that, mm. you do kind of have this this idea that, you know, you watch MasterChef and you see Marcus Waring and he can be very smiley with his twinkly blue eyes and then suddenly he can sort of turn and you think, God, that's quite scary. But then he can still deal with people on a normal level, you know, and be smiley and nice, whereas Gordon Ramsay has this sort of staccato kind of machine gun delivery where everything is snapped and and just yeah. angry and aggressive, even if he's being friendly... It's a kind of aggressive manner, I think.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true. That's exactly uh,
0: the way it works. I mean, I I am slightly
1: amazed at the scale of his TV career and do not underestimate it. On uh, Fox in the US, he he, he is one of the biggest grossing stars of all time and Mm. takes home tens of millions of dollars every year for that. Uh, For the most part, it seems to be built on this persona of aggression and rage. Mm. And... Apart from anything else, I find myself thinking, God, that must be tiresome. Do you yeah. enjoy being that person? Do you actually enjoy being that angry and furious? Do you enjoy being that famous, Gordon? Do you enjoy being, you know, do you enjoy the work? Um, I don't think he does. He always looks sort of bemused and cross and furious.
0: Because I get it if you're, you know, everything's on the line for your business. You're doing 17-hour days with this sort of high-end restaurant and, you know, at a minute's notice, it could come tumbling down and, you know, the pressure's really on. I can get, you know, in the heat of the moment, you might snap at a sous-chef. But then once that ends and you're getting paid loads of money to, you know, go around the world, then, you know, just, like, it's time to relax now, you know. Well, you would think so, but I think he's got it in his head
1: that um, he became who he is through this shtick. yeah. And therefore, that's what he has to stick to. Um, seems very, very peculiar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder whether he's had any therapy. And if he hasn't, maybe he ought to. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are friends of his who say, no, he's a lovely guy. And I, in fact, I've talked to chefs he's worked with in the kitchens who said, no, no, Gordon's fine. Gordon's a pussycat. Gordon's great. Gordon's supportive. OK. You know, well, if that's the case, then why did you do all of that stuff
0: on screen? yeah what what was that about what why did you think it was clever yeah i saw i saw once a really interesting clip on youtube a very old clip with him when he used to work under marco pierre white yes and Harvey's. yeah and marco pierre white you know is famously kind of fiery temperament as well well same fiery temperament another bully yeah yeah and in the background of this clip you can just see, um, like a very timid young Gordon Ramsay, sort of cowering away, sort of look, you know, working on sources or whatever. And it's it's so bizarre seeing him in that kind of with that body language, that sort of like, you know, sort of nervous young body yeah. language. Gordon Ramsay has said that Marco Pierre White made him cry, yeah.
1: and so what? He then went and decided to repeat the behaviour by making other people cry. Well, that's that's a cycle of violence and abuse. I'm not yeah. talking physical violence in case he's listening. but uh, And and he may say that he's stopped doing that now. And he said, well, maybe you could apologise for it as well. And make out that, you know, being a chef, being a cook in a restaurant kitchen, it is a high-pressure environment, but it doesn't have to be like
0: that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, I mean, in terms of being on the island with him, I mean, just a terrifying person to be on the island. Because, I mean, apart from anything, you know, he's used to this lifestyle. He's going to be pretty pissed off that now he's stuck on an island. Um, he's probably going to have a few words to say, to you as well oh, oh yeah but uh,
1: he got very cross with me at one point my publisher sent one of my novels to him or to his office um and you know it was they came back with an endorsement quote and i put it on the book i don't think he ever read the book i suspect somebody else did it hmm. um and i think he concluded that having done that he would be uh, immune from any kind of critical comment from me uh forever and he wasn't um. Also his father-in-law tried to uh, Well, f- sent legal letters to me once Over something he claimed I'd put in another book Which I hadn't <laughs> Quite extraordinary uh, I It cost, uh, cost him lots and lots of money Because he decided to get a very expensive firm of lawyers to write legal letters to one of the papers about me it was great absolutely <laughs> great but that's that's the kind of people they are they're firing off legal letters they're being angry they're being furious they're defending themselves so you know they're characters had a game of
0: thrones they really are mm. yeah i just i just think the level of so if to keep up that level of testosterone and sort of you know even if it's just pretend fury, it would just be exhausting. And just being near yeah. it would be exhausting. So,
1: I, I, Can I point out the irony that doing this podcast requires me to have a level of anger and testosterone?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of you are you on the island now and he's sort of, you know, knocking back and forth between Michael Gove and Gordon Ramsay and just think, oh God.
1: He, here's the thing. So Ramsay is uh, a study in paranoid masculinity mm. in fearing that he doesn't measure up As a man, and therefore, he must climb mountains and you know, ski down the other side and he must kill things with his bare hands and wield a big knife Uh, and Gove is sort of the opposite and I suspect I could possibly retire to the edge of the circle while the two of them wrestled maybe uh, in an attempt to prove something about themselves.
0: Yeah, see who lasted longest. Yeah, because of course now Gordon Ramsay's latest thing is a sort of a Bear Grylls kind of approach to sort of travelling the world.
1: Oh oh, yeah, but there was an, an added element to it which was that he was going to travel the world, uh, go to strange new countries, meet interesting new people, and then show them how to cook their own food. Yeah. That was... The, because you cannot come up with a factual television format without gamifying an element of it. Mm. That was the gamified element he put in. Mm. And, you know, So in Thailand, uh, he'd do a Pad Thai and they'd do a Pad Thai and the audience would
0: decide who was... I mean, for
1: God's sake,
0: get a grip. <laughs> really? <laughs> OK, well, Gordon Ramsay is going to join you on the island. And, and who's mm. going to be the third person joining you?
1: Right. So we've had two people that people may have heard of and the third one you won't have heard of. Um, but uh, and this is about me holding a grudge okay. and a resentment for a very, very long time. It's an individual, but he also represents something. His name is Michael Lompriere. And he was an English teacher at Haberdasher's School for Boys in Elstree, where I was a, a pupil between 1977 and 1984. It's a very expensive independent public school. It has a, an illustrious list of alumni, the likes of Sasha Baron Cohen and David Baddiel and Matt Lucas. They used to call us a bunch of bloody comedians. It turns out quite a lot of them were. <laughs> um, but it was offensively built around attainment, and their version of Attainment and Who You Were. And Lomprier was my English teacher, but he was also responsible for corralling the team who would edit the school magazine, which was a privilege for those in, I think, the lower sixth, because in the upper 6th you you're doing your A-levels. And I asked to be part of the editorial team because I already had it in my head that I would like to be a journalist. And he said, no because this is only a, a position, a privilege given to those with a realistic likelihood of having a career in journalism. Oh. And that moment symbolised everything I hate about that school. I mean, they did throw me out for a while for getting stoned at a party, <laughs> um, uh, which is fine. Um, but their version of what was succeeding, and it was summed up by this guy, Michael Lomprier, who gave the impression of being a, a you know a wonderfully urbane it's like a quite youthful English teacher. I have to tell you, I've tried to find him because I do think a resentment is something you should bear well and <laughs> you should nurture. I've tried to find him online because I'd love to tell him. I mean, yeah. if anybody is listening to this and knows, uh, possibly a former teacher now, but a teacher of, uh, of English called Michael Lomprier, tell him that Jay Rayner thinks he's a wanker uh, <laughs> and that wonders how many other kids in his care he risks damaging Mm. while pursuing the thing that he thought he was so good at. Um, I I do think those environments, those private schools, those hothouses are massively damaging to an awful lot of the kids who go through them. I also wonder about the people who choose them as a place to go to work. You want to be a teacher. You want to impart education. So rather than going to the kind of school containing kids who really need your support and your nurturing, and your education, you go to an expensive public school with um, an entrance exam, which is selective to guarantee that you won't have any of the stupid ones. Uh, So your job is bloody easy and you get paid well for it. And you think that this is a reasonable way to pursue your life. So, Michael Lomprier, if that's been your life's work, I hope you're satisfied with it. Uh, because there is at least one of your form- former pupils who really thinks to use that classic piece of uh, Anglo-Saxon. Which, to be fair, Dom Jolly was the one who used most on your podcast. Dan <laughs> really thinks Michael you are a total cunt, <laughs> and I hope that you are left wondering what it was all for.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a very fair thing. I think it's just there's a particular type of damage that only a teacher can do. You know, oh yes, yeah. and, a- and they do it casually.
1: Yeah, they do it casually, or some of them, if they're actually really sadistic, do it actively. But I, I suspect, I suspect he told me that and didn't think another thing about it, mm. uh, and just moved on with his day.
0: Because I, so I went to private school for a little while um, when I was young. Obviously, when I was young, because that's when you go to school. But um, <laughs> best, uh, best time, mate, best it, time. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, Yeah, and I had a similar thing with teachers. They were sort of simultaneously snobby yet putting you down all the time. So one minute they'd go, now remember, boys, you're better than that rabble down the road at that other place. Sort of trying to foster a sort of a division between other people, like, you know, as if you were better or worse than other people. And then simultaneously constantly telling you that you were stupid all the time. So that, you know, you couldn't even... He's like, well, do you want me to think I'm, like, worth something or not? You know, and just you know, just constantly putting you down to the point where you just think, well, hang on a minute. Like, you're being paid for this as well. It's like, yeah, it's awful. Uh, uh, infuriating. Um, I'd like to think it's got better.
1: Uh, but I had exchanges. I live in um, Herne Hill, Brixton. Well, I used to say it was Hern Hill if you were selling at Brixton if you were being cool, but that doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> um, but in those environs, not far away from the Dulwich Estate. Now, the Dulwich Estate is enormous uh, landowner. Um, they they have the landlord in Dulwich, and their main job is to produce revenue, which then goes to three private schools, uh, which is Dulwich College, James Allens Girls' School, and Allens. Uh, these three very selective public schools in the area, um, and all three of those schools proclaim a corporate social res- a social responsibility to produce kids who are good neighbours and good citizens, and yet the Dulwich Estate, which funds them uh is a landlord which has you know pursued very aggressive pricing policies price people out again I've written about this um and it's all over my website you'll find it jrain.co.uk, look up search my name Dullish estate and you'll find me detailing it and that to me that insidious impact of these private schools on uh the neighborhood
0: in which they are a part sums up everything that I've come to hate about them yeah and, and I mean, because I, I live quite near there as well, and I was dri- driving past um, Dulwich College with my son uh, a while ago over the summer, and he's only three and a half, but he was just like, what is this place? And I was like, that's a school. And he's yeah. like, my school doesn't look like that. And, like, and it never will, son. No, and it never will, because you're not going there. <laughs> but it's unbelievable. And they've even got a sort of a toll road through it. It's like, how... how oh, yeah, how yeah, yeah. <laughs> the toll
1: road is part of Dulwich Estate. I mean, you know, at the very least, they they also have charitable tax free status. What's that about? Um, yeah, that needs to end. Yeah, I, if people want to do this, and therefore drag, I'm sure uh, teachers who could be rather good if they are educating everybody's children out of that system, then the least they can do is pay for it in their own taxes, by paying tax. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I just think the one place where you should be encouraged and, and nurtured is, you know, in the, in the schoolroom. And, and I think teachers who sort of casually or otherwise just sort of put people down and make them feel worthless are just, yeah, just an awful breed of people. So I, yeah. I absolutely applaud your uh, your selection.
1: And, and, and Michael Lompier represents all of that, but particularly because he he, he will have thought himself a bane and a mate of the boys, mm. not a tormentor. But no, mate, you were a tormentor. Yeah,
0: Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> okay, well, moving on from people now, and a category that no doubt people will be interested to hear your views on, because mercifully, amongst the wreckage of the plane, there was some food and drink left over. Unfortunately okay. for you, it's your least favourite food and drink in the world. What are they and why are they so bad?
1: So the food, and, and you can imagine this, tumbling out of the cargo the damaged cargo bay of the plane uh and on the one hand you think well at least it's going to survive for a long time because it's canned mm-hmm. but then it's Heinz baked beans right okay. and I hate I hate them I hate them <laughs> I've always hated them it's a very specific thing I mean I, it probably extends unto those sort of cheap home brand versions of baked beans but Heinz baked beans are the other totemic ones I hate the texture I hate the flavor I hate the sugariness. There is there is nothing nothing about them that I like, um, and yeah, I'm I'm you know given what I do for a living, I am a restaurant critic. I'm a writer about food in many guises. I once wrote a book called A Greedy Man in a Hungry World, and you know I, I'm a man of appetites. You can see I'm a chunky fella, um, but there are a couple of things I do not like, and but prime among them is Heinz baked beans. Horrible, 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 horrible. That's not because they are an everyday food it's not because of an ordinary food believe me give me a plate of Finder's crispy pancakes and I'm there um you know I I, I can go face down in a bag of Quavers it's not because they come from a particular it's not because they're not roast swan or <laughs> lark's tongues it's just them it's the product it's horrible
0: yeah I I've always struggled with them as well and like and I remember kind of like sometimes at school dinners they are seen as like a treat and it was like oh we're having baked beans and you think this is i don't get it you know beans on toast and everything and if if they're on a full english i just like they just Uh, swim around uh, and ruin everything and everything gets damp and you know, and you get that sort of skin on it if it's been left for too long. And, and it's weird because, you know, I, I have no problem with other kinds of beans or pulses, even if they're in a tomato sauce. But it's just that bean in that sauce.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, if I go to, um, you know, one of those U.S. barbecue low and slow places where they're putting huge chunks of meat through a, a smoke or whatever, and there's American U.S. style barbecue beans, I will probably order them. Mm. Those I like. It's 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 not even all baked beans. It's those. It's Heinz baked beans. Mm. I think the Heinz Corporation will probably survive this. <laughs> I have to tell you, but <laughs> I
0: can't bear them. Yeah, it's weird. like even if I say if I'm making it, if my son quite likes them, if I make some for him and you know I get a bit on my hand or something and I lick it off, even that is a, just oh, stop a bit it. too much. You no, must... that's just disgusting. Yeah, Christ alive! Look, I had I've had to think this through. The last thing you have to do is taunt me with it. <laughs> yeah and i think especially in in a on a desert island i mean just a plate of of baked beans is the the last thing you want to be dealing with i I mean this sort of sums up where i am with this it's not the
1: idea of it's not just the idea of having to eat baked beans day after day that's horrendous just the first day would be appalling (laughs) yeah would be absolutely appalling um God, the, thing, the thoughts you put in my head, Dan, it's just not
0: fair. <laughs> OK, well, I'll distract you. What would you try and wash them down with? What would your drink choice be? Well, I wouldn't,
1: would I? I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I'd drink seawater because look what else has fallen out of the cargo bay. It's a couple of crates of gin. Gin, OK. Now, this, I, I, I actually wrote a large piece about it. Well, not large, it was one of my columns. I basically said, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, outside the party because I am a grown man and I don't have my favourite gin. We are living through the gin age. I am willing to accept that this is a failure on my part, that if I look at my booze choices, I, I, I suspect I run away from anything that's too interesting. I don't like Negronis either. That was the other, mm. uh, the other thing that was close on my list. But in the end, I realised gin. Negroni is a very particular thing, whereas the world is swimming in gin. It's too floral, and actually, I, I made discovery, and I, I felt like an idiot for not realizing this, uh, which is that the majority of gin basically starts as a white spirit to which flavors are mm. added. Some very good gins are that that's how they are produced. They are distilled in and of themselves, but the vast majority of you know gin companies, all these new gin companies, are buying in vodka, which I love and then ruining it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the addition of botanicals, suck on a hedgerow. I'm actually of the opinion that most people don't like gin either, which is why there are so many flavoured gins that don't taste like gin. Yeah. I I honestly do respect the idea that some people like gin. That's fine. There are some great companies out there making some great products. I can't stand it. And um, I've lived remorselessly through these gin years being gifted gin. There are a lot of events, you do an event or they give you a goodie bag. Yeah, listen to my terrible life. <laughs> and there in it, weighing it down, is a bottle of oh, it's gin. It's another bloody bottle of gin. I hate gin. Don't like gin. Yeah. Don't like gin and tonics. Don't particularly like the taste of juniper. Don't mind it with venison, but don't put it in my drink. So, uh, yeah, hellish. There's another thing as well. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm just ranting now. That's quite all right. Um, so, obviously, we are in the age of the artisanal food producer. Yeah, um, where people want to get you know prove their their spiritual credentials by going and living somewhere in a rural. Area. I'm very much an urban person, um, even though most of that artisanal food is actually produced in a porter cabin, which is strip lit, um, <laughs> somewhere off a ring road, probably near Reading. But anyway, the thing about gin is that it's artisanal food production for people who don't want to leave the city.
0: Right, yeah.
1: It's a way of of proving you're... uh, I'm an artisan and I care about my food and drink, so I'm going to make gin. Hmm. Probably from a reconditioned warehouse in Bermondsey.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I find... So I like gin, but I find that there's so much sort of image around it now which i struggle with you know so there'll be in there might be a section of a pub bar that's like the gin bar and there'll be some guy in a tweed waistcoat and a flat cap like a sort of you know his interpretation of someone from the 20s you know or like there's a picture of a bicycle on the label and i just think just, it's just a drink. Come on. Like, I don't want, you know, yeah. I don't want a whole hedge in my glass. I just want a nice drink.
1: No, that's it. I, I mean, it is it is sucking on a hedge. I don't really have a problem with all the marketing, because if I did, I think I'd be undermining my, the entirety of the sector in which I work. <laughs> um, you know, vodka is tends to be advertised using iconography culled from... Uh, Russia pre-soviet post-soviet ice queens and Mm. all of that sort of stuff whiskey is tweed and uh, peat moors and that's fine and 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 you're right gin has its hovis cobbled lanes and men in waistcoats Mm. not waistcoats waistcoats (laughs) uh, and all of that and uh, that's fine marketing is what it is I just don't like the taste of it yeah um and I don't want to ever drink it please
0: don't make me (laughs) Fair enough. I also have. I now you know. Obviously, you know a lot about food and drink, so you might be able to sort of help me with this. the The balloon. Goldfish bowl glass that gin comes in these days. That feels like a very That's, recent thing.
1: Now, this is basically you asking me a little bit like you asked me what goes on at, at orgies. I, I haven't been to one <laughs> because I haven't, uh, because I don't partake, I didn't know. Is that what's going on now? They're now serving
0: it in enormous goldfish bowls. Yeah, if you go to a pub in central London and ask for a gin and tonic, you get these huge sort of goblets, which you know, it's just not a very nice thing to drink out of. It's like, you know, I don't know, I don't mind just a normal, tall, um what do you call it, a highball or something, but it's like yeah. a goldfish ball, and it, and it just enables them to put even more like twigs and rosemary and grapefruit <laughs> and everything in there. Then set fire to it. Yeah, um, yeah
1: I mean, you know, certainly gin has acquired a whole bunch of accessories mm. around it which have nothing to do with the drink. Again, as I say, I, I feel a little uncomfortable being too down on all that stuff. It's the gin in the glass. Okay. that it, I mean, it wouldn't matter to me whether they put it in a goldfish bowl, a television, a dog's bowl, it would it would still be gin, I'd still hate it.
0: Fair enough, so gin and baked beans mm. are your food and drink choices. Now, um, fortunately, you won't be without entertainment on the island. The plane's entertainment <laughs> system continues to work, but just your luck, it only has two working settings. One is your least favourite film of all time, and the other is your least favourite song. What are they and why?
1: I thought very long and hard about the film, mm-hmm. because... I have quite a tolerance for terrible movies there are some <laughs> terrible movies that I've quite enjoyed sitting through. If you give me a big disaster movie um and it's crap I'll still enjoy it. Mm. Uh I was thinking for a while about the third in the Matrix trilogy which I resented hugely <laughs> yeah. because I'd invested so much in the first one and the law of diminishing returns was huge with that. Yeah. And right. and it was long and it didn't go anywhere and oh but I I probably watch it for the special effects, and that would be okay. And eventually, I settled on a whole genre, and you're going to want me to choose one film to define that genre. And the genre is a western. Right. Okay. Can't I can't bear westerns. I think again, possibly it it feeds into this uh, lack of patience with a certain form of masculinity. Mm. I, I have never watched John Wayne do anything that I found remotely moving or plausible. Or interesting. It's always tiresome. So it's going to be True Grit.
0: Right, okay. Uh, It
1: it is the film I choose. uh, To not have to watch. To bury my head in the sand as the, the entertainment system
0: went on and on and on. I hate westerns. I hate John Wayne. Yeah, I just find them such a long-winded sort of vehicle, like a western. It feels like they go on forever, and you know their nature is just quite slow. And maybe it's to sort of echo the kind of the landscape. It's kind of slow and dusty, and
1: yeah, you're you're meant you're meant to take in the landscape, and you're meant to be uh, drawn up in the frontiersman spirit and that primeval sort of battle of. Uh, good against evil and real men against evil men and oh leave it alone (laughs) nothing happens there's always some long lingering shot John Ford working the camera like it's you know like it's his own horse (laughs) (laughs) horses uh, nothing, nothing, there's nothing. I mean, even some of the, I, I suppose I've got a little bit more tolerance for some of the more modern ones. I think um, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven yeah. in the 90s attempted to give you a different version, but really the Western, no, 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 and no. Yeah. And no
0: John Wayne and no True Grit, just no. Yeah. I just think, yeah, it's the backdrop, it's, everything about them feels unappealing to me, you know, the backdrop. It's not a sort of an oeuvre where you could ever sort of feel like oh this looks cool i'd like to be a part of that era or anything like you know just sort of everything just looks difficult and dangerous and dusty and unpleasant and boring dull yeah dull 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 there's nothing going on
1: and um and the same with the movies because they seem to have no plot at all mm. or it's the same plot it's you know it's, it's barely a three-act structure tedious in the extreme. I would be so bored. I would be crying with boredom. (laughs) I'd be so bored. I'd be, you know, actually having a conversation with Michael Gove just because I prefer to have a row with the obnoxious little Mm. scamp (laughs) than I have to watch the bloody film.
0: I can imagine Gordon
1: Ramsay would be getting stuck in like, I can't
0: believe you don't like this stuff, Jay. Come on, come on. Call yourself
1: yourself a man. No, Gordon, I I do call myself a man, just not your kind of man. I'm sure sure you're right. I'm sure Gordon loves a, a bloody... Western. Yeah,
0: turned up really uncomfortably loud. And (laughs)
1: and, uh, Michael Lomprier would criticise my analysis for being slightly lacking in insight.
0: (laughs) And what would your song choice be?
1: (laughs) So some people may know I have a sideline playing jazz. Mm -hmm. I have a quartet, quartet, and we do draw on the Great American Songbook. And I, I, I love it dearly. I love that repertoire. I know it very intimately. There is one song in there which I hate with an absolute passion and it is My Way. Okay, yeah. I hate my way, not just because it's a dirge, mm. um, but also because of what it has become. Uh, I love Frank Sinatra. If you look over this shoulder, yep. you'll see a picture of a young man. And that is a mugshot of Frank Sinatra uh, in his early 20s, a police mugshot uh, in Hoboken. Um, the offence for which he has been brought up is seduction. In other words, he fucked somebody else's wife. Yeah. <laughs> Sinatra at the Sands uh, which was not long before the offence of My Way is one of the greatest live uh, recordings of all time as far as I'm concerned but My Way has become this and again I think it goes to a certain view of masculinity Mm. for pathetic men to make excuses for themselves you know uh, what they're really saying is, I've fucked up at life. I've been a terrible husband. I've been a terrible father. I've been a terrible person, but at least I did it my way. Well, well, why don't you do it somebody else's way? <laughs> it, 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 the song is 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 poorly written and annoying <laughs> um, and uh, just really gets on my tits. And, and then it's the way that it has become adopted. And it's the people who cling to that version of Sinatra that also drives me nuts mm. you know they go oh, I love Frank Sinatra I love my way and you go no you don't understand that was the point at which he became shit everything else before that was all brilliant <laughs> you're not even paying attention the Capitol recording songs for stringing lovers all of that stuff the Jimmy Dorsey's you're, you're not you don't actually love Sinatra you love this terrible 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 song mm. which speaks to a certain kind of man you can just imagine Gordon Ramsay, when he gets to sixty-seven, standing up at a party, taking the mic and singing my way to a terrible backing tracker, being really pleased with himself and I can say no worse.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think it's because isn't it famously one of the most picked songs at funerals as well, I think, in, in the UK. Oh. And I just kind of think, I hope one day that song gets buried with the whoever chose it yeah. as well, so it's gone forever. Because it's just and it's it's so long, it takes so long to get to the kind of swell of. It. and even then it's just it's not worth the wait i think not it's not worth the wait it's not worth the time um i um
1: i don't have much time for the the, the great rock and roll swindle the sex pistols movie mm. apart from that bit where they do my way and take the piss out of it remorseless <laughs> <laughs> i love that bit
0: yeah yeah i I'd, I'd, I'd be okay with that version i think but yeah it's just I don't know. It feels like it's just it's a song for people with no imagination because it's like you, yes, you know, yeah, it's one exactly,
1: of those... and and no capacity to engage with their own emotions. Mm. There, it, it, it's secondhand emotions. Yeah. Now, obviously, a lot of songs are, and the reason we like them is they they give voice to an emotion that perhaps we have not necessarily managed to codify for ourselves. But the the emotion of my way. Uh, I've been a jerk, but at least I did it my way. Oh, mm. God help me. Uh, it, it's such a cheap one, yeah. such a lazy one. Um, that it just makes me, as you can hear, angry <laughs> yeah. and cross.
0: Yeah, I just feel it's a very sort of generic go-to. It's like, what's your favorite poem? Kipling's "If." What's your favorite painting? Mona Lisa. What's your favorite song? "My Way." And there you go, yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It,
1: it it's it's um. An attempt at a hinterland for someone who doesn't have one. Okay.
0: Very well put. Very well put. Now, uh, finally, Jay, the island is overrun by the biggest dick of all the animals. Which animal is it and why? It's, it's Burmese cat. A Burmese cat.
1: OK. Yeah, because Burmese cats are so fucking pleased with themselves. <laughs> they slink around. Thinking, aren't I gorgeous? Aren't I beautiful? Aren't I slinky? Aren't I? Aren't I? No, you're just annoying and attention-seeking. <laughs> You're tiresome. You <laughs> mew in a really annoying way. I am someone who has had cats. Mm. We stopped having cats when we realised that over 20 years uh, they had been claimed by the road and this was no longer a good thing to do in London. So we don't have cats anymore. But I rather liked living with cats. Mm. They were always, you know, tabbies of various <laughs> concoction, a bit Heinz, 57 varieties. The Burmese, the pedigree Burmese cat.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> Talking because it thinks it's got something interesting to say. <laughs> You know, showing itself off, slinking up against your legs as though you give a toss. Mm-hmm. Attention, see, I've said this already, haven't I? And an island completely overrun, yeah, by these bloody animals. Oh, it would be hell. The only upside I have to say is that they would possibly be a better source of food than the baked beans.
0: Although they're always very scrawny, aren't they? They're a very sort of slim cat. Like I I've, when I've come into contact with them, they're not even that fun to cuddle because they're quite no, sort of bony no. and stiff somehow.
1: Yeah, they are they are bony and stiff. In um in various markets in particularly in northern Spain, when they sell rabbit in the market, they always have to leave the furred head on so that you know it was definitely a rabbit and not a cat. <laughs> wow. Genuinely. Wow. That's right. And and you could just imagine if you've run your hands along that skinny frame of a Burmese cat um, that if you if you flayed it, it could quite easily pass as a rabbit, mind you, not a bad idea not yeah. a not a not a terrible idea it'd be better than looking and listening to them. if Peter now get in touch with me, you have to understand we were merely talking in a hypothetical version of life in which i 've crashed on an island i 've got Michael go Michael Lompriere and Gordon Ramsay of the company give me a break <laughs>
0: fair enough yeah there's in in around my area every now and again i 'll sort of look out the window and I see this couple kind of acting a bit strangely, kind of sort of peering into people's front yards and they're walking on a bit and then peering and I said, go, what's going on? And they've got a Burmese cat. And I, I think it, I don't know if they're taking it for a walk, but I'm pretty sure it's it's taking them for a walk. Because I, I don't know what it is, like if it's a no house cat. No other cat does that, does exactly. it? I exactly. Mean, it's so it's, bizarre. It's, it's
1: the Burmese cat, which is sort of demanding, you know, yeah. oh, come and follow me.
0: Or, or the <laughs> only other explanation is it's so precious that they can't go out without, you know, it can't go out without, the, you know, it's it's carers. And either way, it just seems like the most high maintenance thing. All the other neighbourhood cats are just running around, having rows, and this thing has got its chaperones with it all the time. Yeah. It's ridiculous. High maintenance, that is the way to put it down. Absolutely. High maintenance. Absolutely.
1: An island infested with them would be a terrible, terrible place.
0: I agree. I agree. Now, Jay, thank you for this. You've, you've put together a wonderful collection of, of awful people and things to be stuck with. I think you've done a, a particularly fine job um, and you've really built uh, quite a large rod for your own back. So you you've You've, you've done brilliantly. Um, but now is the time in the podcast. I like to ask people uh, what you're up to at the minute and where, where people can best sort of keep in touch with what you're doing at the moment.
1: All right, well, I'm going to mention one thing in particular, which is just before this lockdown, I was doing um, a run of my one-man show, My Last Supper, which is based on my book now out in paperback. It's about my last meal on earth and what I would have. Give me props for continuing to perform a show about you know what you'd eat before you die into the teeth of a murderous pandemic. <laughs> um, it's, but it's a jolly show. And I was meant to do five nights of it at uh, uh, the Crazy Cox at Bresbury's Adele. I actually was the person who closed it on that Wednesday night before the second lockdown came in on the Thursday. But we, we uh, filmed one of those performances and we're streaming it from november the 28th uh from six thirty for a week in aid of the food chain which is a brilliant hiv charity of which i'm a patron um it's a small charity giving nutritional advice and support to people with hiv there's been a massive demand for their services while resources have been in supply so i'm trying to raise a bit of money for them um, you can find a link to tickets on my website jreina.co.uk. Uh, and I do hope as many people as possible can have a watch because, A, it's a good cause, B, there's some entertainment, uh, and so you don't actually have to watch it at all, just give me the money and then I'll pass it on to that.
0: Okay, and we'll also put a link to it in uh, the description of this podcast that as would, well.
1: That would be brilliant, that would be brilliant.
0: And uh, if you're listening to this now, uh, it's this coming Saturday, so the 28th. Yeah,
1: 28th of November. Um, should I, do I also get to mention that I have a
0: podcast, darling? You do, yes. I've been listening.
1: Because what, what would it be a modern male without a podcast, or a modern person without a podcast? Quite. So, so mine's Out to Lunch, in which I take uh, a well-known person out to a restaurant that was in you know normal times and grill them to a turn. And some of it now is over Zoom and a, and a takeaway. Uh, but I think the next one that's coming up, probably Dara Brin, uh coming up on Just As This Drops. And that one is, is over Zoom. I had to send him a very big steak. <laughs> See, your podcast, you just it's all imaginary. My podcast, I have to send them actual food.
0: Yeah, I know. I just, I just let you vent and then sort of leave you with your, your murderous thoughts afterwards. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a worse deal, I think, being on mine. Yeah. But uh, it's been a I pleasure having you anyway, Joe. So thank you very much for coming on Desert Island Dicks today.
1: Uh, I feel a lot better for getting all that off my chest. Thank you for having me, Dan. <laughs> Good.